Thank you for reading, Sarah. Like Sarah said, what an absolute cracker of a story. Uh, my name is Lama, if I haven't met you before. A uh, special welcome to you if you're here for the first time. But before we dig into this part of God's Word, how about we pray? God, our Father, we thank you uh, so much for your Word. And we thank you, Lord, that through your Word you speak to us. We also thank you, Father, that you are a God who moves powerfully and in amazing ways. So I pray, Father, that you might do the same this afternoon for us, that you will move us and speak to us through your word and help us to understand what it is that you are communicating to your people and also help us to understand how we might apply these words into the way that we live our lives as Christians in this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you know, when I was younger, I, I always loved watching movies. And I, I usually just watch movies just for kind of the visual effects, and I wasn't really paying attention to a lot of the, the little details and stuff. But as I would get older, I really appreciate a well-made movie. So I, I always appreciate directors who take the time to really try and weave the, the story around together. And every now and then, you'd watch a movie where the director just cuts a scene. He cuts a scene, and then all of a sudden, he just takes us to a completely different scene. Completely different scene, different people, different aura about it. And then it's left for us as the audience to try and figure out like, how does this scene have a connection with the previous scene. Well, that's actually kind of what we're seeing here today in our passage. You see, from the last three chapters of 1 Kings and the first three chapters of 2 Kings, it's basically just been high-octane action. Now, you see, battles between Ahab and Ben-Hadad then there's the battle for Ramoth Gilead. Elijah gets taken up by, a char- by the chariot of fire. Then there's another battle with, the, with this unusual partnership between Joram, Jehoshaphat, and the Edomite king as they fight Moab. And then, of course, we saw that disturbing sacrifice of the Moabite king's son last week. It's full on. But now, as the camera zooms out, it pans across and then zooms in on our chapter. These, these seemingly random group of people. We don't, we don't really see any names here. We know very little about them. We're almost questioning, thinking, are we in some kind of commercial break here? What's going on? Well, as we look a little closer, as we look a little deeper, there's actually a real sense of intimacy in how this chapter unfolds. There are no kings, no queens, no commanders, just regular people. And the story that Sarah just read is actually, uh, so from chapter 4, is actually the second of four short stories uh, within the chapter, or for, like, it involves miracles. Unfortunately, we don't have time to go through all of them, but I do want to just touch on the other three stories because I think it will help us set up our scene for the larger story. So our first story, verse 1 to 7, we have a widow, a widow who has basically lost everything. Everything except her two sons, and a measly jar of oil. Now, because she's heavy in debt, the creditors are about to come and take her sons too. And so she pleads with Elisha, the man of God, to help her. What does Elisha do? He tells her to gather as many vessels as she could, and then just start filling them up with the, with the oil from the jar that she has. And so she pours, and she pours, and she pours it, and it just keeps going until all these vessels are filled. Right, so now she has this abundance of oil that she's able to sell to cover her debt. 
and still have plenty left over to live off. A miracle which is very similar to Elijah's miracle back in chapter, chapter 17 of 1 Kings. Now, jumping on to the third story, a third story, verse 38 to 41, Elisha is in Gilgal, and he, this is during a famine, at a time of a famine, and he's with the sons of prophets. We met them a couple of chapters ago. So he then instructs one of his servants to prepare a meal for all of them. So the servant goes out. Remember, this is during a famine. He goes out. Food is scarce. And so verse 39 there, it says that he found a wild vine and gathered as many wild, wild uh, goods as his garment would hold. And he's not just plucking like a couple. He's raking everything in. He's taking it all in, not realizing that it's poisonous. This, this is the kind of guy we do not want cooking 4.30 dinners. Right? He, he doesn't seem like he knows what he's doing. And so, as the sons of prophet eat, as they eat, they realize that the stew is poisonous. And so they call Elisha the man of God. Well, what does he do? Elisha describes a handful of flour, throws it into the stew, bon appetit. And all of a sudden, the pot is nutritious. The pot is nutritious. So there we have another miracle. And then shifting into our fourth story, a gentleman comes to Elisha with 20 loaves of bread to feed the people. Well, what's the problem in this one? There's 100 people. Now, when I first read this story, I sort of thought, look, 20 loaves, 100 people, surely that's enough. I counted a bread, a bread loaf yesterday. It has about 19 slices in a regular bread loaf. And so when you 19, lots of 20, 380, that's three and a half slices each and leftovers. Right? Surely that'll be enough. But, of course, I'm pretty ignorant when it comes to the measurements here. That's not actually how they measured a loaf. You see, back in those days, one loaf is about eight inches in diameter. Eight, I don't know if that's eight inches. Eight inches in diameter and one inch thick. That's how big a loaf is. Right, so if that's a loaf, then 20 of those will probably just be enough to feed maybe 10 average people or two Pacific Islanders, give or take. Well, Elisha, the man of God, he tells him to hand out the bread. He tells him to hand out the bread because God will make sure there's plenty. Well, what happens? He hands out the bread, and of course there is plenty for everyone. And there is even leftovers. You see, after we shift from story to story to story, it seems like Elisha is on this Miracle spree. Right? So if you remember back to chapter 2, chapter 2 verse 9, just before Elijah is taken up, Elisha asked him for a double portion of his spirit. And so here, one and a half chapters later, there's this exponential increase in miracles. Right? So it was prophesied that it would happen, and now it's, we're seeing it unfold here. Well, as we get into our main story today, we see more amazing things unfold in another of Elisha's encounters. So point one in our outline, faith in action. So we're picking it up from verse 8, so verse 8 of chapter 4. One day Elisha went to Shunem. A prominent woman who lived there persuaded him to eat some food. So Shunem is a small town, small town in Israel, which lies, you can see there on the map, it lies between Samaria and Mount Carmel. And if we think back to uh, chapter 2, verse 25, I believe. Yes, verse 25. So this route is a route that Elisha took. 
frequently. And so, of course, in order to make this trip, he would always have to swing through Shunem. And so, in Shunem, this prominent woman, this wealthy woman, would always invite him to stop by and eat. But we see that her hospitality doesn't stop there. But she actually decided to turn her place into an Airbnb for Elisha. So look with me, verse 9. Looking at verse 9. So she said to her husband, I know that the one who often passes by here is a holy man of God. So let's make a small room upstairs and put a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp there for him. Whenever he comes, he can stay there. I mean, we, we are looking at an Airbnb super host here. Right? She is providing food. She is providing accommodation. But we also need to remember that she is in Israel. And Israel at this time has turned its back on God. They have turned their back on God. They are now pagan worshippers in Israel. But for this Shunammite woman, she not only acknowledges Elisha as God's holy man, but she goes out of her way, out of her way, uses her wealth in generosity and hospitality to serve God by accommodating Elisha. And I think it's a wonderful picture of how God's people can use the means that they have in a way that brings glory to God. Now, of course, I'm not saying that you need to set up your spare room or make a hot meal for Josh every time he drives past your house, as nice as that would be. But it's, just, it's helpful for us to think about how we can use these gifts. Think about how we can use these gifts to serve God and give him glory. You'll notice, of course, with our announcements um, as well, our announcement, the giving announcement is the only one that makes it in every week. Not because we're some money-hungry church, but we want to always be encouraging one another to prayerfully consider. Prayerfully consider how we use our wealth, how we use our gifts that God has given us for the work of his kingdom. And so, back to our story. After one of his routine trips, passing through Shunem, Elisha wants to bless the Shunammite woman for her generosity. So from verse 13... He calls his servant Gehazi. So this is the first time we meet Gehazi. We'll learn a little bit more about him in uh, the following weeks. He calls Gehazi to pass on this message. So verse 13. Say to her, look, you've gone to all this trouble for us. What can we do for you? Can we speak on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I am living among my own people. See, this is how we know that the Shunammite woman doesn't have ulterior motives in her hospitality. She's been, she's been given this off and she says, no, look, I am home here. I don't need anything. I don't need any favor from the king or anything like that. But Gehazi, he picks up on the one thing that she doesn't have from the middle of verse 14. Well, she has no son and her husband is old. She has no son, and her husband is old. So she has all of these, these, this wealth, but she has no son. And so Elisha sends for her again, and he makes this prophecy in verse 16. So he says here, verse 16, At this time next year, you will have a son in your arms. And she said, No, my Lord, man of God, do not deceive your servant. 
her hope of having a child had probably dissipated years ago. And you know, back, back in the ancient world, uh, there was a strong stigma around barrenness. But for the Shunammite woman to think that she will now be blessed with a son, her very own son, it just seems too good to be true. Well, at the same time, the following year, a son is born to her, just as Elisha had promised. But then the story takes a horrifying twist as we get to point two on the outline, the faith in adversity. So as the child grows, this promised joy turns into a parent's worst nightmare. Read with me from verse 18. So the child one day went out to his father and the harvesters. Suddenly he, com- he complained to his father, My head, my head! His father told his servant, Carry him to his mother. So he picked him up and took him to his mother. The child sat on her lap until noon and then died. See, it's, it's a chilling turn of events. The child that she had so longed for on her lap in agonizing pain. You can almost picture her totally helpless, not too sure what to do. She's holding on to him, trying to settle him down, patting his head, helplessly watching as her son's energy fades, his breathing wanes, gently but gradually his eyes shut, and he's gone. It's a horrific image. You see, in life there can be moments of overwhelming highs, but there are also moments of gut-wrenching, heartbreaking lows. And so how do we respond to those awfully low moments? Well, in our story, there's something particularly striking about the Shunammite woman's response in verse 21. So look with me, verse 21. Then she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, shut him in, and left. It's a little bit strange. You're sort of asking what's going on here, because it doesn't look like she's preparing the child for a burial. Well, instead, she leaves her son on the man of God's bed and sets out to Mount Carmel. Even her husband, he's he's obviously unaware that their son has just died. He's asking, why are you going to see Elisha? And she responds, end of verse 23, everything is all right. And as she draws near Mount Carmel, in verse 25, Elisha sees her. And then the end of verse 25, he said to Gehazi, look, there's the Shunammite woman. Run out to meet her and ask, are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your son all right. So when Gehazi gets to her, she gives the same response as she gave her husband. There at the end of verse 26, everything is all right. You know how sometimes when, when little kids hurt themselves, like for, for, for example, if they fall down and then they get up, they, it takes them a little while, there's like a delay before they start crying. So they, they might get up and then they look around, they find their parent, and then they burst into tears as they're running towards the parent. I feel like that's kind of what's happening here. You see, it's only once the Shunammite woman reaches Elisha at the mountain that the reality of her sorrow is revealed. You see, she falls at his feet. And verse 27, Gehazi, the gentleman that he is, came to push her away, but the man of God said, Leave her alone. She is in severe anguish. 
and the Lord has hidden it from me. Elisha is showing a deep concern for her. Although he is the man of God, like the rest of us, he is still human. He will only be able to understand or to do what God has allowed for him to understand or to do. And so Elisha sends Gehazi ahead of them to Shunem with the instruction to place his staff, place Elisha's staff, on the boy's face. And so as Gehazi heads off, the Shunammite woman doesn't leave with him. Instead, she stays back and in verse 30, she says to Elisha, verse 30, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So Elisha got up and followed her. See, she doesn't want to leave unless the man of God is with her. And what we see here with the mother is that this interesting mix of like contentment and holy frustration, if that makes sense. In, in the sense that she's saying everything is all right with my soul, but everything is not all right with my world. Now, you see, I have just lost my son, my one and only son. So she's sort of juggling these emotions, trying to make sense of the reality of the situation. You know, sometimes, especially for us men, uh, we feel like we have to be so stoic with our emotions. I mean, it's okay to show emotions and to cry when we're facing real difficulties in life. And our story here is a real raw picture of the fact that having faith in God does not mean that we are exempt from the trials and tribulations of this world. But the question is, will you hang on to God? Will you hang on to God like the Shunammite woman is hanging on to the man of God? And so as Gehazi makes it to Shunem first, he gets there, he places the staff in the boy's face, and from the middle of verse 31, there was no sound or sign of life. Nothing. So Gehazi goes back, goes back to Elisha, who is already on his way with the, with the boy's mother, and he tells him that the staff didn't work. The staff, putting the staff in the face didn't work. And so as Elisha arrives, he finds the boy lying dead on his bed. And in verse 33, Elisha went in, closed the door behind the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. This is the first thing he does. He prays to the Lord, knowing that only God can raise this child up. And praying that God, in his mercy, might raise this child up. And then, after he prays, he went up, lay on the boy, put mouth to mouth, eye to eye, hand to hand. While he bent over him, the boy's flesh became warm. You see, it's, it's such a bizarre method of trying to raise someone from the dead. But, you see, if we remember back to 1 Kings chapter 17... Elijah does the same thing. He does the same thing to try to bring back to life the son of a different widow. So first, Elijah prays, asking that God might raise the boy. And then this is, this is in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 21. So he prays, and then he stretched himself out over the boy three times. And then verse 22 of chapter 17. And the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. You see, Elisha is just following the precedence of his master's actions. By faith, he's copying his master in the hope that this boy might be raised to life. 
but it only warms the boy's body. Then from verse 35, Elisha got up, went into the house, and paced back and forth. Then he went up and bent down over him again, but this time the boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. And so here, as the boy is raised to life, the Shunammite woman, in verse 37, in gratitude, she came, fell at Elisha's feet, and bowed to the ground. And she picked up her son and left. And as we think about how we can make sense of this story, this brings us to our final point in our outline. Faith in the Almighty. Now, there are a lot of things that we can draw out from the passage, but for the sake of time, uh, there are a couple of things that I would like for us to consider. Uh, so the first thing is, faith in the Almighty brings us comfort. Faith in the Almighty brings us comfort. You see, throughout this chapter, God is doing incredible, miraculous works through Elisha. In all four stories, but miracles that bring comfort to those who turn to him. It's a stark contrast to the previous chapters where we see kings of Israel time and time again refusing to turn to God and reaping the consequences of their unfaithfulness. But for the Shunammite woman, God reverses the seemingly irreversible. He shows that he has deep compassion and mercy for those who seek his delivering power. Folks, he cares for his people. He cares for you. He is not just a God of the big moments, just doing stuff out there, so far removed from his people. No, he is personal. As we see here in this story, he gets close and personal with just ordinary people like you and I. In the New Testament, we are reminded in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God those who are called according to his purpose. Of course, this doesn't mean that everything will be smooth sailing for God's people. But when we think about what Paul also says in 2 Corinthians, verse, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, is that he encourages people that when God comforts us, comforts us from our affliction, that we too are to comfort others from their affliction. We are not comforted so that we be comfortable, we are comforted so that we might comfort others others. And then we get to our second point, and our final point, faith in the Almighty brings us confidence. You see, as we wrap up, we are going to cut the scene again, and I want us to zoom out again, but this time we are going to pan the camera and zoom in eight centuries into the future, just over the hill about six kilometers from Shunem a small town called Nain. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus and his disciples are in Nain. And so Luke chapter 7, verse 12, just as, Jesus neared, just as Jesus neared the gate of the town, a dead man was being carried out. He was his mother's only son. Sound familiar? Verse 13, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, don't cry. Then he came and touched the open coffin and said, Young man, I tell you, get up. Verse 15, the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. 
Then fear came over everyone and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people. You see, as we read about Elisha here, as great as he is, he is only a shadow of the one to come. When we think of the name Elisha, God is salvation. The name of Jesus, Yeshua, Yahweh will save. Yes, Elisha is the man of God. Jesus is God in the flesh. Yes, Elisha feeds 100 people. Jesus feeds 5,000, 4,000 people. Yes, Elisha takes three attempts to wake the boy up. Jesus speaks once and commands the boy to raise from the dead. And this is what we also covered in our previous series as well, in the book of Hebrews. We see that Jesus is the greater then. Jesus is the greater Abraham. Jesus is the greater Moses, the greater Elisha. And so, for us as God's children, on this side of the resurrection, this is why even when it feels like the world might be caving in, we can have confidence to say, just like the Shunammite woman, everything is all right. Because God has secured salvation for us through his son, Jesus. And so take comfort and be confident and hold on to the faith that you have in God, the Almighty. Let me pray. God, our Father, we give you great thanks that you are a God who is uh, patient and a God who is so full of compassion and rich in mercy. And I pray, Father, that, and, and ask that you will help us to remember that truth and to remember that you are a God who has intimate and close and deep and personal relationship with his people. And I pray, Father, that we might draw near to you and that we will, we will humble ourselves before you as we come to you with our, with our concerns and with our troubles and with our joys, Lord. And we thank you that you have allowed us to be in relationship with you when you sent your son Jesus to die for us. Therefore, building that bridge to allow us to cross over and be in relationship with you. I pray, Lord, that this joy is something that will also just compel us or propel us to really want to get this great news out there to other people that they might see the wonderful news of Jesus and that they might also put their trust in him and be saved. And we pray, Lord, that we will be humble in how we enact these words in our lives and that we can be encouraging one another, keeping one another accountable in the way that we live our lives, that it might glorify you and you alone. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.